Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we will be considering verse 1 up to verse 17. I appreciate Matt giving the word uh, last week. Uh, it was very helpful. And his challenge last week to build deep friendships within the church helps us to flesh out the intent of our church's mission statement. If you don't remember it yet, let me state it again. We exist to worship God with our whole lives as a loving community under the gospel. And that notion of deep friendships within the body of Christ speaks to the being a loving community under the gospel. We seek to produce disciples in Guelph and around the world. Now, if you think about it, that mission statement is rather audacious. Because worshiping God in every aspect of life and building loving, self-giving relationships with one another are simply inconceivable when personal survival is already a struggle. And making disciples, making faithful followers of Jesus is frankly beyond our ability. No amount of leadership strategy, no amount of teaching technique can change the human heart. And yet, we can embrace this challenge because this text tells us that God is at work in our lives to make this mission statement a reality. With that in mind, let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 17, and I will be reading from the New International Version, 2011 edition. Hear the word of the Lord. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone, 
forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We can imagine our mission statement becoming a reality more and more in the life of our church because of our union with Christ that Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3. In fact, Colossians 3, Paul is explaining the day-to-day -day implications of our union with Christ that baptism is meant to portray. That's from chapter 2, verse 11 to verse 13. Rem let me remind you of that. Um, chapter 2, verse 11. In him you all were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And that's the reality that Paul is building on in chapter 3. He brings us back to the reality when he says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. It highlights the fact that when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. When he rose again, we rose with him. And in rising with him, we have become part of the new creation that Jesus inaugurated in his resurrection. That is the foundation of our transformation. We have died to sin. We have new life in Christ. And so Paul says, Christ then must be the focal point of our lives. That's why he says in verse 1, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. The things above that he's talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. He's saying we must set our hearts, our affections on Christ, who is exalted to the highest place. It is a call to deliberate, diligent, disciplined focus on Jesus as the ultimate object of our deepest affections. And because we can be um, rather clueless, Paul repeats it so that we... We, we catch his emphasis. He restates the challenge. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, a lot of people think of this as heavenly absent-mindedness. That's not what Paul is talking about. The things on earth that Paul is talking about are, according to David Powell, practices that refuse to recognize the sovereign rule of Christ. 
And these are the things in verse 5 to verse 9 that we are to put to death. But set your mind and set your heart both tell us to focus on Jesus Christ. And they both imply that Jesus is so marvelous that we cannot but love him. I mean, when you think about who Jesus is, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, the sovereign creator and ruler, redeemer of his people, why will we not love him? Especially because we recognize he loves us. And he loves us so much that he gave himself for us. So that his love for us is so compelling that it grips us to love him back. And as his love captivates us, then our desires begin to be reoriented around Christ's desires. And we then may start making our decisions in light of the preciousness of Jesus Christ in whose pleasure we find ultimate delight. And Paul himself embodies this because in Philippians chapter 3, he considered knowing Christ to be such a tremendous treasure that he willingly considered anything he might sacrifice for the sake of knowing Christ as disgusting filth compared to the joy of gaining Christ. You're familiar with those words from Philippians chapter 3. And this, friends, is the glory of salvation. Beyond the joy of sins forgiven and the hope of heaven, it's the wonder of gaining Christ himself. And that's why Paul justifies his command to seek Christ by saying in verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We focus on Christ because our life is hidden with Christ. And that image of being hidden with Christ, first of all, implies protection. It tells us that Christ is our security. There is nothing for us to fear because we have been bound to Christ by His Spirit so that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And because he is the divine, sovereign Lord over all, if we are bound to Christ and we are in Christ, Paul's argument is that we have everything we would ever need. That's chapter 2. But there's more than that. Paul is pointing out that Christ is not just our sufficiency. He is also the basis of our identity. And that's why I can rejoice even if Alexander Gilmore beat me playing basketball 12-11. And the kid said, maybe you can announce. <laughs> that I beat you. <laughs> Embarrassing though that may be. You know what? I can do that because Christ's love for us defines our worth. It, I am not defined by the fact that I lost to a kid. <laughs> Christ's love defines our worth, not our accomplishments or people's approval. Moreover, the Apostle Paul is telling us something even more precious. 
He's telling us that our true nature and our true identity is hidden in the present time. We live in the already, not yet. We are saints, but boy, we sure do not look like saints, do we? We don't look like saints yet. Our true status is hidden within Christ, who is our life. And this is our hope. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Christ is coming. He will return to consummate our redemption. And when he returns, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Christ is our life. His indwelling presence is our hope of glory. And it is that same hope of glory that fosters our growth in likeness to Jesus. Paul is building on our union with Christ to challenge us to build, to become in our daily life what we already are in Jesus Christ. And that's where verse 5 to verse 9 comes in. Since we have died with Christ, then we must make a radical break with our sins. Verse 5, put to death therefore in light of our being dead in dead to sin and risen with Christ, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. We put them to death, we put them aside, we make a radical break with sin because sin is inconsistent with our true identity as God's redeemed people. Sin is inconsistent with our status as God's adopted children. That's why we have to put to death these sins. And this is what is called a vice list. It's not exhaustive. It is representative of all sin. And Paul deliberately ends this vice list, this list of vices, with greed, which is idolatry, because the list describes our futile attempts to satisfy legitimate needs and desires the wrong way. And that's why they're called idolatrous. We are trying to meet our needs apart from God. We recognize that sexual immorality, impurity, and lust are all attempts to gratify our legitimate need for intimacy, acceptance, and love. But we want them on our terms. Rejecting the truth that intimacy, acceptance, and love can only be had in right relationship with God. And sadly, our efforts always fall short because they cannot bear the weight that we put on them. And that's why people get addicted to sex or porn or whatever because they keep looking for the satisfaction that seems just inches from their grasp. And they keep hoping, maybe next time. It's like the leaps. Sorry. That's the... And frankly, any sports team is your prototypical idol. They're only good enough to make you hope. And then they crush your hopes because they do not deliver. That's what idols, that's what idols are, right? 
And it doesn't have to be a sports team. It can be a person. It can be a career. It can be whatever that you're using and hoping in to meet your needs apart from God. And they just leave you frustrated. Well, here's the worst part. Look at verse 6. Our idols do not simply frustrate us. They also damn us. Verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. God is going to judge our specific idolatries. Or God is going to judge us for our idolatries, whatever form it might take. And so you may be here and you may say, well, I'm not guilty of sexual sin and I'm not a greedy person. But in trying to live your life apart from God on your own terms, you are, by definition, an idolater. And God's wrath hangs over you. And you need to cast yourself on Christ in repentance and faith so that you would be reconciled to God. And Paul, in this passage, reminds us that we were objects of God's wrath in order to emphasize the grace of God that has rescued us from damnation. Again, notice how he phrases it. Because of these, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now, you must also rid yourselves of all such things season of all such things he's reminding us you were an object of wrath i have christ has rescued us from damnation we have died to sin we have risen with christ and so we need to put off our sins because they do not belong they are not consistent with our new status and privilege in christ god has given us new life oriented around jesus in whom we have everything we would ever need so we don't need to pursue idols when we have the one that could only that that could truly satisfy and then paul gives us a second vice list this time he gives us a list of ugly attitudes and actions that destroy our relationship with others he talks about but now verse 8 you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And just reading that reminds you of Mark chapter 7, doesn't it? Where Jesus talks about the things that defile. It's not what you eat, it's what comes out of our evil hearts. So that these attitudes and actions are simply symptoms of the rottenness within. And I think Jerry Bridges is correct when he says, I suspect that much of our anger is not a result of significant injustices or wrongs against us, but it is the manifestation of our own pride and selfishness. And we know that, don't we? When somebody cuts you off in traffic, you get mad. You want to honk your horn. Why? Yes, part of it is because the person did something unsafe. But deep down, it's 
how dare you get in my way? Right? How dare you inconvenience me? I own the road, or think I do. And Paul wants us to recognize and that I own the road mentality is a symptom of our pride and selfishness. And Paul wants us to recognize that these heart attitudes of pride and selfishness cannot be tolerated because God has made us new creatures in Christ. They are the anti-God idolatrous attitudes that are inconsistent with our being in Christ. And that's why Paul closes this vice list with lying. When we erupt in anger, in rage, in malice, in slander, in filthy language, we are revealing the fact that we have been harboring pride and selfishness in our hearts. And that same pride and selfishness that we harbor, the very act thereof, denies God's work of grace in our lives. And that's why Paul closes with lying. Do not lie to one another. Because when I get angry at somebody, because I am proud and selfish, because this person is getting in my way and inconveniencing me, then I am denying the fact that God reigns and rules and has made me his child. And Paul's encouragement and command is that we need to live out the truth of God's grace that is actively transforming us. And at this point, all of us are like, oh man, I'm so busted. <laughs> but here's the good news. The grace of God enables us to deal decisively with our sin. We often get frustrated when we see our sin. And we think, man, I've been a Christian for so long. I'm still struggling with this. And we can be tempted to give up and just excuse it and say, oh, well, that's me. I'm never going to, I'm always going to be this way because we're not making progress. Look at what Paul says. This is our comfort. Look at verse 10. And I've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You, you catch her that? The new self, which is being renewed. See, Paul wants us to remember. We are not just new creatures. We are new creatures in the process of being transformed. We live in the already and not yet. And God is at work to renew us by bringing us into a deeper knowledge of himself. And Paul's use of the passive voice, notice, being renewed, that's passive, emphasizes the fact that God is the one who is transforming us into the image of Christ. And yes, we agree, we fail. Praise God, he will not fail. He has already rescued us from our bondage to idolatry to live for Christ alone. Our task, our responsibility is to exercise dependent responsibility. We trust that God is at work in us and we respond, we submit to God's work by deliberately fighting against sin 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul here isn't just addressing us individually. He is speaking to us as individuals who are part of a group. And that's why he moves from idolatrous heart attitudes to heart attitudes that destroy the harmony of the body. Because he recognizes that growth in godliness is a communal project. The call to follow Christ is a call to community. And that's why he describes in verse 11 the new self in communal terms. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. We are a community of faith bound together by Jesus Christ. Racial, social, cultural barriers, economic barriers are transcended by our common allegiance to Jesus Christ. And look around you. That's what's going on here right now. Of us worshiping Christ together, coming from different countries, coming from different social backgrounds, having different upbringings, and yet united in Christ. And that very difference amongst us is actually what shapes us, doesn't it? Because we have to get along with each other. And we bump up against each other and rub against each other. And the Spirit of God uses that to teach us the character traits in verse 12 onwards. See, it's not just a matter of putting off. It's not just a matter of fighting sin. It's a matter of putting on the right things. We can get so caught up in fighting against sin, we don't realize that we're putting on, as we're killing certain sins, we're putting on other sins. The challenge is for us to put on the right things. We demonstrate the transformative reign of Christ by putting on the character of Christ. Verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And you can see the imagery here of changing clothes. You put off sin and you put on the proper heart attitudes. Because during that day, you couldn't just wear what you wanted. These days, we wear clothes as a fashion statement. In those days, your clothes were meant to indicate your rank in society. So if you wore purple without being a member of the Roman nobility or being a member of the emperor's family, you could be punished for claiming a higher rank. And that's why Paul addresses us as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. He is emphasizing our privilege. We are God's people, God's children. We have experienced the same grace that the high priest Joshua experienced. He has taken our filthy clothes and clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we have an exalted status that both humbles and challenges us. He has shown us infinite grace. He has changed our status from damned sinners to beloved children. And it's a status we do not deserve. And gratitude for His grace should motivate us 
to live up to the identity that he has given us. And so we live up to that identity by becoming like Jesus. And that's why Paul begins by calling us to set our hearts on Christ because we become like what we worship. As idolaters, we become empty, vain, and vile. But as we set our hearts on Christ, we become more like him as his love begins to shape our lives. And as the people of God, the internal change that God is bringing out, bringing about manifests itself in the way we treat others. Essentially, we treat others the way Christ treats us. That's why we can clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We can treat people with compassion and kindness because God has shown us his unconditional love by rescuing us from our idolatrous misery. Christ saved us by humbling himself and sacrificing himself on the cross. And so we humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters by using our gifts and abilities to their benefit. We put our, their best interests above our own interests. And because God even now treats us with gentleness and patience despite our continuing sinfulness, bearing with us and refusing to give up on us because Christ paid for our sins, then we also demonstrate God's patience and forbearance. Verse 13, by bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And notice what it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So there was a question that came into the RJ box and said, which basically said, how do you reconcile being a child of God and being un refusing to forgive somebody who has wronged you deeply? And in light of this text, we'd have to say, well, I can't reconcile it because those two are incompatible. Notice what it says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So you can only be unforgiving if Jesus has not forgiven you. And if there's a sin for which you haven't been forgiven, then that's the sin that you can't forgive other people. But that's nonsense, isn't it? Because God has forgiven all our sins. And therefore, as the people of God, we have a responsibility before God to forgive just as Christ has forgiven us because we are bearing witness to what Christ has done for us. We are responding to the grace of God towards us by extending to others that same grace we have received. And then Paul moves on. Above all these, we put on love which binds all these virtues together in unity. Because in the first place, we have and continue to receive Christ's love, don't we? And in the same way, we exercise all of these virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience with love. Well, that's hard. You're wrong. That's impossible. But thankfully, we do not pursue these virtues on our own. 
as a church, we manifest these virtues because Christ has first reconciled us by his death and resurrection. That's why verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. We live like this because God has acted in our lives. He has called us together to be a united community of shalom. And that guiding influence of the peace that Christ has established, it's what enables us to live in harmony that reflects the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. Again, it boils down to this. Our life together must reflect the transforming work of God so that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the question is, well, okay, what means is God using? Well, notice what he says, verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. We need to be shaped by the gospel, the word concerning Christ's person and work. That's why he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's the image of oil lubricating every moving part in an engine so that the engine hums smoothly. So Paul is challenging us to go beyond acquiring information to being so gripped by the gospel that it begins to transform the way we look at things, what we want, what we value, and how we live. Or to think in terms of another image, imagine pulled pork sitting in an amazing sauce all day. You getting hungry? <laughs> so that it absorbs all the flavors of that sauce. See, that's how we change. The Holy Spirit soaks us in His Word and rewires our hearts and minds thereby so that we love and obey God. Again, it's not, a, it's not just an individual effort. It's a communal effort. We are soaked in the gospel as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. See, we all contribute to one another's growth. And Paul is using three different terms for songs to emphasize that singing is one of the best ways to internalize God's Word. I mean, let's, let's face it. You will forget the sermons I preach. I preach too long anyway. You will remember the songs we sing. And so I appreciate Jessica's hard work to choose theologically rich, musically, musically compelling songs. The songs we sing point us to God's gracious work on our behalf so that we are led to thank Him for His goodness towards us. And the memory, the recurring memory of God's goodness strengthens our love for Him and binds us to God in deepening relationship. Please remember, grateful, God-centered worship enhances the gospel's grip on us. And as the gospel grips and shapes us more and more, then it strengthens our gratitude for the grace of God. And as we are thankful to God, 
that same gratitude transforms us because thanksgiving fundamentally acknowledges our need for God and His authority over us. If you look back to Romans 1, the sin of mankind is that they, although they knew God, they refused to glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful. And so as we acknowledge our need for God in giving thanks, we also acknowledge God's rightful authority over us. And as we recognize Christ's authority over us, His character begins to define us, teaches us to submit. And he, His character begins to define what we do and how we do it. And that's what Paul means in verse 17 when he says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We embrace the priorities and standards of Jesus as described in Scripture as our own because we desire to please Him. The name of Jesus is all that He is. And so we want to please Him. Why? Because it says, giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. And that's what our life needs to become. Out of gratitude for His grace, we then want our lives to be living expressions of gratitude to God. And why shouldn't we? He has graciously united us to Christ. He has rescued us from our damnation. He has transformed us into His children with a sure and certain hope of spending eternity in His glorious presence. That's what God has done and is continuing to do for us. It's something we don't deserve. Shouldn't we be grateful? And so by the power of the Spirit, my heart, my prayer, is that we would keep growing in likeness to Jesus so that every aspect of our lives would be an act of worship offered to God for his pleasure, for his glory. It's our way of saying, Jesus, thank you. Let us pray. Father, we indeed thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the privilege of belonging to you, of being your people, of being the people whom you have rescued from the mire and muck of our sinful idolatry to make us into your children. And we thank you that in your love you are making us your children who look like your son. And you know our failures, you know our stubbornness, but we thank you that you're so committed to us that you will not give up on us. And that even in our folly, you continue to lavish your grace upon us. I pray, Father, that as your word sinks into our hearts and minds, you would teach us, first of all, to be grateful. And in grateful recognition of your grace, we pray that you would transform our hearts in acknowledging your love to learn to love you back so that you would reshape our desires to love what you love, to value what you value so that increasingly 
we would treat others the way you treat us. So that we as a people would truly be a reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. So that our entire life as individuals and as a body is a continuous chorus of thanksgiving offered to you for your praise, for your pleasure, for your glory. And we thank you that you're at work in us to make this happen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.